Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Leslie Lavery, who is the author of A Collective Pursuit, Teachers, Unions, and Education Reform. This was published by Temple University Press in 2020. Um, and as somebody who lived through um, Act 10 in Wisconsin, I was particularly interested in um, sort of learning about this in a sort of sustained research context. Um, and I'm really interested to talk to Leslie today about her book. Um, I'd like to welcome Leslie and ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this project. Hi, Leslie. Hi, thanks for having me today. And so I can uh, empathize with you as I also lived through Act 10 in Wisconsin. So um, I I think some of my background is informative for coming to this work. So I taught second grade in San Jose through Teach for America for two years before I came to Wisconsin for graduate school. Um, And during my graduate school education, I had the opportunity to work with the Institute of Education Sciences on an internship that put me in contact with the Gates Foundation, which was doing something called the Measurement of Effective Teaching Project to try to identify effective teachers and retain those teachers. Um, And I ended up working with folks at a think tank over at the University of Washington who are exploring teachers' unions and their influence on student outcomes. And so I moved to uh, St. Paul, Minnesota in 2012 to work at McAllister College, and I had some background in studying open enrollment and school choice policy, and then this newer background in looking at teachers' unions. And I saw them as two separate research agendas. And then when I first prepared to teach a class on education, politics, and policy, I got out the newspaper in St. Paul and saw a headline about teachers at the Twin Cities German Immersion School School moving to unionize. And the headline sort of dismissed this move as, oh, those German socialists, of course, they're unionizing, pay no attention, this isn't about a charter school. Um, And so I'm teaching the class, and I had the opportunity to bring in a leader from the Minneapolis Federation of Teachers, who told me about an organization she was part of called the Minnesota Guild, which was a union-sponsored, union-funded organization building their own charter portfolio. And so I thought, well, that's interesting, and again, sort of set it on set it to side. And then by the end of that semester, by the end of that spring, teachers at a predominantly Hmong charter school here in the Twin Cities had also moved to organize. And so I thought, these are not separate research agendas. It's not just unions or school choice. There's some interesting overlap between these things. And we're seeing a new and different overlap that sort of challenges the predominant narrative about teachers unions. Um, And so I originally began this project, and this is following my dissertation research, a new line of work to just sort of figure out what was going on in charter schools that was leading people to unionize, or why would the union put their foot into their own charter portfolio and into this endeavor? Something we understand and know about unions and school choice and uh, public education more generally is missing, and I want to figure out what it is. And so I started looking in the charter sector, and I quickly realized that a lot of other things that we knew and expected that we understood about unions we're also much more complicated. Most of what we know is, a, is from large urban 
unions, but we saw, um, as I was still working on this book in 2018, what um, the NEA's Lily Erskine called the education spring, where we saw teachers in West Virginia walking out on strike. And then they were followed by teachers in Oklahoma and Arizona and Colorado and Kentucky. And so there was sort of this moment where it seemed like we were pushing back against this narrative of teachers unions as obstructionist and outdated. And um, so I thought that was an exciting moment to explore particularly what happens outside of these big urban districts and some of the context that teachers unions are doing their work in. And in terms of your your work itself, the, the book, which is about unions, but it's also about not only trying to get at the different nuanced sort of understanding of unions, it's also the understanding of the role of the teacher in the classroom um, and how that connects not only to education and, you know, perennial education reform, but also to sort of our understanding of unions in the United States. Um, Can you first talk a little bit about, you know, your work on and thinking about and what the data says with regard to the role of the teacher in the classroom? Sure. So um, as as I mentioned earlier, there's been a lot of work on teachers' unions, and that work followed this recognition across disciplines that teachers are the most important in-school predictor of student success. And I want to emphasize that in-school predictor because, um, as we know from other decades of research and from our friends in sociology, uh, there are a lot of factors outside of school that will predict a student's success. And I think that the urge is to control the factors we can control. And so if teachers are the most important in-school factor, Let's figure out how to get the best teachers in the classroom, how to make sure that they stay in the classroom, how to make sure that they're using effective methodologies, et cetera. Um, And unfortunately, I think with that focus on teachers, um, we're trying to figure out how to like make them all the same and make them work in a machine and not recognizing that one of the reasons teachers are important is that they have the autonomy to be individuals, that they are professionals that have this training and this expertise, and that they will grow, and that their first year is a huge learning curve, and that we need to nurture them and keep them. And so it it sort of interacts with a lot of other conversations we're having as a society, too, about like, how do we diversify the teaching force? And so these conversations act like they're happening on different planes, and there are different authors and researchers focusing on different pieces of the equation. But teachers are what makes schools run. And I think we've, we've recognized that during the pandemic, that if a teacher doesn't show up, there's no adult in the classroom and it doesn't matter what curriculum you have or what infrastructure you have, what, what other resources you have, it's not happening without a teacher. And, and so we have then, you know, again, education, the need for a teacher. Um, We are committed to education in the United States. We have a history with regard to um, various kinds of education, you know, kindergarten through 12. And then obviously higher ed is a whole nother area. Um, but you, you sort of are, are making the argument that the teacher is important, but the teacher is also a, a multivaried individual and part of the equation because the teacher is also trying to advocate not only for themselves, but for their students. And this is where the unions come in. So if you could talk a little bit about the two main unions that we know of, the AFT um, and the um, 
I'm sorry. NEA. Yeah, I know. Okay, I, thank you. All the acronyms <laughs> in this space too. Um, and and so how they have also come to be seen as kind of the bad guys. Right. Right. So so they have different histories. So the NEA is the older union, and it really was born as a professional educators organization, and it represented teachers and administrators. So now we see those two sides as different sides in this adversarial relationship. But they, the NEA was all about professionalizing education. And one of the big things they lobbied for was more funding for public schools as we went from really localized community schools that started out not being organized in districts or under state purview. And we grew to this bureaucratized system of education that we currently have. So the NEA wanted more funding for schools and they wanted teachers to be treated as professionals. So they wanted teachers to go through um, licensing or credentialing programs and to follow specific curricula, and they wanted teachers to have some authority and autonomy in the classroom. The AFT was the more militant and labor-oriented organization that was actually born um, out of Chicago and Margaret Haley. And, and, basically, uh, and um, basically, the argument there was we, teachers have different interests than educators. We're the ones in the classroom. We're treating, we're treating education like it's a factory, and we want to just put slate these automatons into positions, but that's not how it works. Um, we want to give teachers more power and authority, and we want to give them good pay, and we want to make this a worthwhile investment. And so um, so that sort of sprung out, and the two unions competed for years and years and years, and um, probably to both's detriment, because then there wasn't a coherent message. Um, and the AFT was more affiliated with union generally and wages, and so that became the view of what unions are is that they're for teachers' interests and their economic interests. So we want teachers to be paid more. We want really great teacher retirement packages. We also don't ever want teachers to be fired. Um, and so some of those those stereotypes about unions come from sort of the older um, characteristics of these unions that have since evolved and spread. And And one of the points that you bring up is, you know, these are the unions that have been in place and, and have worked with and, and recruited and are supported by teachers in public schools. Um, but as you started to tell your story of your own, of the genesis of this research, and also as you track it through the book, um, the charter school movement has now somewhat moved into this space a bit. Um, and so for listeners who aren't as familiar with the sort of distinctions, um, why is that unique at this point? And how were the charter schools designed to sort of go around some of this stuff? Yeah, so we, we actually have to look at the birth of charter schools, which is really fascinating because um, what, what, what opponents of charters would have us think of them is that they are this like market-based challenge the traditional public schools, let the parents be the choosers, and the public schools will have to compete and the market will sort itself out. Um, but that wasn't the only vision of charters when they started. And so actually um, from the AFT was Al Shanker, and he he advocated for charter schools, which he saw as schools within schools that would allow teachers to innovate in different ways. But the teacher would be the person or the source that was empowered. And then teachers would learn from experimenting with pedagogy or the length of the school day or the grade span in their classroom. And then they would share what they learned with the rest of the school. So that was Shanker's vision. And then um, this is all happening in Minnesota, which is interesting. Um, Ted Coldry from the Citizens League said, 
he he envisioned charters of what he called withdrawing the exclusive franchise. So take the take away the district's right to be the only one that's authorizing schools and let's allow other entities to authorize schools and let's let folks compete. And this is going to make schools stronger. Um, and so Ted Coldery is the one that won out because Minnesota is the first state that came up with a charter school and many other states ended up copying many elements of what, what came to fruition in Minnesota. And what came to fruition here in the 1990s was these charter schools were their own entities and they didn't therefore need to follow a lot of the guidelines and contracts and they didn't, their teachers didn't need to be unionized. That's not to say their teachers couldn't be unionized, but that wasn't part of the model. Um, and so I will say that in some states, charter school legislation does require unionization to be part of the model. And that was the case for Wisconsin before Act 10, for example. And so if a charter school sprang up within district bounds, it also had to follow the collective bargaining agreement and bargain with that unit. Um, but that wasn't the case in the majority of districts. So you see charter schools essentially not giving power to the teachers to innovate necessarily, but giving power to the mission and the school leaders. And so in some cases, the school leaders are teachers or they're working with teachers and they're all aligned on what this is, what the mission is. This is what it looks like. This is how we develop teachers. This is what we do for our students. But in other cases, it ended up being it increasing those divides between labor and management. And um, the, the workers, the teachers didn't have much say of what was going on in the schools. And we saw a lot more turnover in the charter sector. And um, it, we didn't necessarily see the innovations. And yet we were seeing public school students move to a charter in search of alternatives. And so it was interesting that charter school teachers moved to unionize because our expectation would be they're in charter schools because they don't like the union and they don't like the rules and the structures imposed by the union. But what, what I found when I talked to teachers that were unionizing in the charter context is they wanted higher wages, which is one thing that unions do. They wanted some of that clarity. So they wanted, if they were going to be evaluated, they wanted to know how they would be evaluated. Um, if they were going to be fired, they wanted to know how they could be fired or what recourse they might have should they be fired um, or should someone move to fire them. Um, and so it wasn't that they wanted, and I can talk about that separately, some of these other nuances that unions are starting to, nuance things that unions are starting to do. They actually wanted what unions really initially arose for, which is the bread and butter benefits, the like, I want pay and I want some security and transparency. Um, and, and in terms of the, you know, sort of the rise of the charter schools that we now see them all over the United States in lots of different forms and fashions. Um, they can be from, you know, universities or they can be from other independent organizations. Um, but in terms of the people who are teaching at a charter school versus somebody who's teaching at a public school, what are the differences in terms of those kinds of bread and butter capacities and issues? Yeah, so I, I do want to clarify and that um, I, I listen carefully to the charter opponent or charter proponents that charter schools are public schools in the sense that they receive public funding. And so I, I distinguish between charter schools and traditional public schools rather than say charter schools and public schools. Um, but something that distinguishes them is that the charter there's in most states different funding mechanisms for these different types of schools. So there's public funding flowing but it flows differently. A charter school may get more funding from the state, but not be able to rely on local property tax revenues, for example. 
Um, and so some folks think charter schools are at a funding disadvantage. And the way that might play out then is that teachers are paid less in charter schools oftentimes. Or they may not be paid less, but they may have the ability to experiment with merit pay or other forms of pay that are just less transparent. So they may be able to woo someone from the STEM field with actually higher pay than they might get in a traditional public school. Um, but then that means there's pay disparities within the school. And so you don't see that as much in traditional public schools. In traditional public schools, they have something called a step and lane model of payment, where the way you move up in the pay scale is your years of experience and your credentials or your degrees. And so you can move to a new um, new lane if you have a new degree, and otherwise you're moving up each step as you spend more time in the field. And that's not very common in the charter sector. Um, part of the reason that charter administrators like their model is that they don't have to pay people just because they've been there a long time. They can reward folks that have special credentials or reward people that had a great year or do really well with student performance, and they like that incentive-based pay. But it turns out that at least the teachers that are moving to unionize don't like that unpredictability don't like the pay disparities, don't like that it seems like somebody got paid more and I have no idea why. And and so in, in that regard, the the two models, which are the predominant models aside from private schools in the United States, um, have, you know, sort of one has a long history working with the unions and this other model, the charter school model, has a much shorter history, but one, as you note, that was kind of an unexpected path. Um, and so I wanted to ask you a little bit about why that path was taken um, by teachers, as you know, you're looking at them specifically in Minnesota, but it's not only in Minnesota um, that you're seeing this, uh, and, and what it was that the teachers in urban, suburban, and rural areas were kind of looking for in pursuing this path towards unionization in a space that hadn't been there before. Yeah, so let me let me clarify. So the the charter teachers are unionizing newly, but the distinguish the way I'm distinguishing between urban, suburban and rural is through traditional unions. They've always been unionized, but their unions are doing different work um, and not the work that we always see. So maybe I can speak to the the charter piece first. And those those teachers are moving to unionize and looking for unionization because there's a lot of change and lack of accountability in that sector. So um, I've done work beyond the Minnesota cases now with some folks at the Center for Reinventing Public Education. And it seems that um, charter unionization is having a moment in some places. So it may be sort of like this diffusion effect of where you, you see it in an area like Chicago, and then all of a sudden it catches on. Um, I'm also seeing some signs that there's greater charter unionization in the face of this pandemic. So I can tell you that just two weeks ago, two more schools in St. Paul moved to vote for a union. Um, and so that's that's all brand new. And there was a lot of change that showed teachers how little power they had during the pandemic. So people were told, you come to work, this is our safety standards, and this is just what it is. You come to work or you leave, you don't have a job. Um, I think teachers were able to hold administrators a little bit more accountable because there was no one lining up for their job during the pandemic. But public school teachers got to work with and through their unions. And of course, superintendents and school boards can listen or not listen to the unions and what they're advocating for. But unions seemed to slow down the process and make folks listen and think more carefully about what safety procedures might be in place, what accommodations might be in place for different members. 
And so those are the sorts of things that charter teachers didn't have as their schools were growing. So the Community School of Excellence, which is a predominantly Hmong charter school that I was looking at, grew from like a couple hundred students to a thousand students in a short period. And so it went from this community of educators and the founders of the school who have a shared mission to, okay, we're plugging in a lot more people and we need to have systems and a bureaucracy, but it wasn't clear what the systems were and the leader wasn't listening and the leader was now further removed from teachers. And the same thing was happening at the Twin Cities German Immersion School. They went through a couple directors. And so the original vision isn't there. The original way that you were able to share your voice and your concerns is now gone. And so you feel like, wait, we have all these people that have a shared interest, but we have no way of expressing our shared interest. Um, but the unionization is by no means easy. So I, I will say that about 12% of charter schools are now unionized. And the percentage has actually fallen, not because fewer people are unionizing, but because there are more and more charter schools. So there are more people unionizing, but the percentage has fallen. But of that 12%, about half are um, in place and unionized because that charter is in a state where they're required to be unionized. So it's a small but significant population that are actually moving to unionize. And I, at the end of the book, did not predict what I'm seeing now, which is even more more charters moving to unionize. And one of the reasons I did not predict that is it's so much work. And teachers are already doing so much work and the scope of what they do has expanded over time. Um, And it's getting along with colleagues that have a lot of diverse interests and a lot on their plate and figuring out how to make it through what can often be a very adversarial process. And when you have a sector with high turnover and it might just be easier to leave and go to a different school, it's really hard to get the momentum to even drive this union process. And some of the charters that have unionized, it's taking them three years to get to their first actual contract that takes, that actually changes anything. So it is an arduous process and it's not necessarily gonna spread like wildfire. Um, and, and that's one of the points you also make at the end of the book, because you focus in on the Supreme Court decision with regard to changing the dynamics around teacher contributions to the unions. Can you talk a little bit about that case and how it has a li- has shifted somewhat the landscape? Right. So the Janus case overturns 40 years of precedent and collective bargaining. And the precedent that was set in, in the Abood case, basically said um, teachers unions do political work, but they also do labor work. And in order to f- have labor peace, we need to um, allow teachers to have fair share bargaining, which meant that if your state had collective bargaining law that said that, bar- that collective bargaining was permissible, that teachers could opt out of being an active member of the union But should they opt out, they still needed to pay their fair share because the union was negotiating contracts and getting them better wages and ensuring that they have retirement benefits and would still be required to protect them should they file a grievance, right? So the union is representing everyone, whether or not you want them to. But Abood said, we can require fair share bargaining in the interest of labor peace, but it's a gray line between unions' political actions and their just the running of schools and maintaining that labor peace. And so when the Supreme Court overturned this with Janice in 2018, they essentially said, there is no line. Like union work is political. Um, Unions asking for higher raises is making states consider how much they put towards education versus other things. And so 
there may be members of the union that are forced members through this fair share practice that actually don't agree with that, that think the state doesn't have enough resources and shouldn't pay them more. Um, So it's a political issue. It's not that you can draw a line and say this is economic and this is in the interest of labor peace and that stuff over there is political so you don't have to pay for that part and so here's your lower fee. Um, So you can interpret that one of two ways is what I argue. You can say, oh no, it's all political and now unions don't have um, this fair share bargaining fee and so they have to spend a lot more time organizing and making sure that they're actually advocating for all the teachers that they represent if they want to have members and they want to have um, the collective resources to do something. Or you can say, yeah, it is all political. So unleash the beast and let the union do the political work that they've started to do through um, this common good bargaining, which I mentioned started in Chicago and had spread to St. Paul. And the idea of common good bargaining is to say that the scope of bargaining should not be focused just on teacher pay Um, which is what we see in the headlines or when we hear that teachers are moving to strike, we often see, and and this has changed a little bit in the last few years, that teachers want higher pay. And there's some sympathy for just that argument in the 2018 education spring. But that was also what allowed teachers to be pigeonholed as like self-interest or to say that there's a teacher's interest and the student interest and the teachers are working for their self-interest. So the teachers in in these common good bargaining um, organizations are saying, no, we really do want to advocate on behalf of our entire school community. And so, yes, we want higher pay. We want to attract good people to this profession, but we also need school counselors and we need more folks to support our English language learners. And we need um, school librarians in every library. And we need tech support people as we go into this pandemic and virtual learning. Um, and it, and some unions will take it further than others. So, for example, in St. Paul, um, the union rallied for a clause in their contract that said this district will not do business with big banks that are going to foreclose on our students during the school year. So they really did make it more about social justice. And the district can always argue in that case, like, that's beyond the scope of bargaining. No, we will not bargain with you on that. And so then it's just up to the district and the, the union to work that out and decide what, what they are willing to do. But it, it leaves out the, so that the district's critique will be like, whoa, you're being political. And now the unions can say, yeah, we are, we can be, we will be political. Our members have joined and this is what our members want. And, and so it did, it did shift, um, as you say, somewhat of the, the capacity because, um, it changed the way that the automatic kind of membership dues came in. Um, but you also talk about in the book, and I think you make this really clear in terms of the thinking about a teacher in the many facets that they have, so that they are coming into a classroom to, to educate students. Um, and you and I do this in higher ed, um, but that is not the only thing that we do. And as you note in the book and, and in context of unions, that's not the only thing that teachers are talking about. Um, and the union role is one where it has become a narrative um, when we see a strike um, or we hear talk about teachers unions, that it's it's always about the interests of the teacher as somebody who wants higher pay, who wants something for me, as opposed to as you're discussing it and as you discuss in the book, 
what is it that teachers are actually asking for broadly? Um, and can you address that sort of philosophical shift that, you know, it's, it's sort of hard to see how we're going to get there, particularly when we have, you know, what happened in terms of Act 10 and all of the conversation in Wisconsin and nationwide around things like strikes and breaking unions? Well, teachers are asking for both and, right? And that's that's always a tough request if resources are scarce. But I think that the, some of the union leaders that I talked to were saying, we're calling this a scarcity myth. And so they're saying it's the resources aren't scarce. Um, if we treat education as an emergency, then we can come up with the resources. And there's evidence that we have done that or are doing that now in response to the pandemic. Right. So um, school districts around the country would probably be facing huge budget shortfalls were it not for additional federal funding for the coming year. But instead, many of them for the first time are adding some of these new new positions with extra student support and student success teams um, because we're worried about learning loss. Right. But teachers that have been there have always been worried about learning loss or learning disparities and have been fighting for these things and saying, I can't be the nurse and the psychologist and the teacher and the pseudo parent, and I can't work every hour of every day. And so I I think we saw this, and and this is something we can have to continue to negotiate as a society, Um, but we saw this during the pandemic. So I've been interviewing teachers union leaders in 12 states since last March um, in different waves of interviews just to see whether and how they were involved in negotiations about what happens, what's the COVID response. Because the narrative I think we saw was teachers unions are obstructing school reopenings. Um, But it's interesting that that was the narrative because for a moment last March, teachers were heroes. And so Shonda Rhimes was tweeting out, we should pay teachers a million dollars a year or a day. Right. And uh, parents are nodding their head and they see all the, they start to see all the work that teachers are doing. Right. To individualize education for their child, to figure out who goes where and who needs what. And teachers unions in some of the districts I was talking to were involved in making sure kids got food. So they were on those immediate response teams to make sure that we could keep bus drivers employed by getting students food and creating a whole new school pantry. Um, so I, we saw that moment where teachers are heroes but it didn't last, right? That when when parents realized that no help was coming for them to balance work, um, when we're all backed into our corner and we all feel like no one's looking out for us and the government has failed us, then we start looking for other fingers that we can point. And so that's the challenge that I think we all need to rise to that I point out in the book is that if um, with growing inequality generally in this country, it's easy to be like, well, teachers already have better benefits than the rest of us and they get summers off. And what do they want? They, it's, they got better than what I've got. And instead, we need to think about it from the same position that teachers unions are trying to push us to think about it as like, this is the whole community. Like we want teachers to be paid better and we want to be paid better. And we want to have affordable housing. And so it's when you work on this larger agenda, it's a challenge for sure. But um, the federal, go- and this is why it's really interesting, education is interesting as a policy area is because federalism becomes so important. So you started the call about like, we as a country have invested in education, but really there's nothing about education in the constitution. Each state decides what they're going to do when it comes to education. And so I can tell you that each state does have something about education in their constitution, 
but it's different in every state. And we've seen lawsuits about equity and adequacy launched at the state level because that's where we can hold people accountable. The federal government has gotten off easy. Like they've taken on a much bigger role since No Child Left Behind in terms of standards and mandates. But remember that there were challenges that these were unfunded mandates. And those challenges never went away. Policy just changed and got layered on top of policy. So it's still the federal government that wants to take credit for education or express views and use use education as a way to you to funnel values or to funnel resources. But really, they're just a minor player when it comes to the financing of education and to working out the details and the logistics. So I know that many states were frustrated that there was no greater federal involvement in telling schools what to do. But there wouldn't have been like there wasn't precedent for that. There wasn't capacity for that at the federal level. And then states often ended up kicking the can further down to districts to say, make these decisions on your own. And school board members are people like me and you. And we want that because it makes a more democratic system when you have people from your community, but they have no expertise when it comes to how to respond to a pandemic. So we get what we get. And the federal government federal government has underinvested. And that, I think, is one of the greatest ways we could see greater equity or greater value placed on teachers. That's Part of Blyden's education plan is to get teachers higher pay so that this is a profession that people will want to come to, which I think is a huge challenge, particularly following the pandemic. And I mean, this is always something that astounds my students when we talk about this in my intro American politics class. And I often have education majors because they have to take that class. And, and you know, I'm like, uh, which government are you talking about when you're talking about education? Because it's not the feds. Right. Um, <laughs> And they're like, really? No, I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> it's really not. No. It's really not. Uh, and so there is, you know, there is, as you talk about in the book, there are these different narratives that are coming at us with regard to how we think about teachers. Teachers are heroes. We've always thought about them. And every person that you can ask probably has a favorite teacher sometime in their life. And they always think about like how much that person influenced them. And then you have to step back to abstract politics and teachers are the problem. Um, And this is also, you know, connected into this unionization and the idea of like, who's working on behalf of whom. how would you say we can possibly change that narrative? Yeah, well, what what is interesting is the narrative has gotten more complicated with the pandemic because I think it wasn't just teachers are the problem. It was the unions are the problem. But it became over the course of the pandemic, teachers are the problem, which I think is even scarier or more problematic. Um, but I think there's another layer here that we haven't talked about yet, and that is um, race and racism and systemic racism. And um, in some ways, the union got themselves into this position um, that's a much more complicated position than what we've articulated thus far. And that is that um, there was a moment when teachers unions had really figured collective bargaining had caught on. The idea had spread. More states were requiring or permitting collective bargaining. And the union saw this as a way to professionalize the education workforce. And they want to keep these new benefits that they're gaining. And then you also have the civil rights movement right around the same time. And in New York City, um, these forces sort of ended up butting heads. And Al Shanker, who's the guy that's the visionary that comes up with the charter idea, is also the leader of um, the the UFT at that time. And he basically decided that if it's going to be community against the union, and we've just got these professional guarantees, 
we're going to advocate for the union above what the community says it wants. And it created a lot of distrust between people of color and the teachers union. And so it made the teacher, this professional who was above and not a part of the community. Um, and I think was one of the union's greatest weaknesses from that point forward, that drawing that line between the community and the union. And so I think the union can gain more power if they re-engage with community, why the, which is why this common good bargaining is such an important strategy. It's not, it can't be just a strategy though, right? Like you can't just say we're bargaining for the common good and we're working on behalf of the community and have that be truth. You actually have to do it and listen and engage with community. And so that's why I think union work is so difficult going forward because not only after the Supreme Court um, came out with the Janus decision, does the union now have to work harder to engage their own members year after year, you can't just sign someone up for the union and they're a member for life. You have to be relevant to your members year after year and get them what they need, what they want. But also you have to engage over and over year after year, month after month with members of your community. So you can't do an anti-racism book group and be like, now we understand parents. Now we understand the students in our district. And so we're going to advocate for them. And here's our policies. Yes, they do want you to advocate and be aligned with, be an ally and work for policy change, but you, it's not just a one moment in time, this is what we want and we're going to get it in this policy and then it's over. And that work of re-engaging your members and engaging with the communities is so time consuming and so difficult, especially when we just talked about all the other things that teachers have to do um, just as part of their job as the classroom teacher. And so I think that's the challenge going forward. And, and that's also one of the points that I was really intrigued by as I was reading through the book is that there's, there's so many levels to, you know, how to think about the, as I said, the perennial question of education reform. Um, and, and so what you're also talking about is the role of, again, the teacher, the pivot point um, as a union mem- member, as somebody who lives in the community and may even have children in the school and, you know, how they operate in that context, and again, as you point out, the question of equality and equity um, within the schools, which is always something when we look at the education research that is problematic. Um, And so how do all of these parts come together to move us towards more potential equity and equality with regard to education outcomes for the students themselves? Yeah, I think, unfortunately, there's no silver bullet. That's what anybody working in this space has concluded. That's that's the one thing we can agree on is that there's no silver bullet. Um, I am increasingly convinced that um, collaboration where there are formal, formalized cha- channels of influence for all stakeholders in this public education endeavor is an important first step because it's not going to be decided necessarily federally or at the state level. If it's going to be decided community by community, then you have to figure out how do you empower all the voices in that community. And so the union is one way to formalize teacher influence. It's not the only way. So especially in this work I've been doing with the pandemic, I'm talking to teachers in the South where a collective bargaining is not an option. And so they're finding other channels of influence. They're still organizing as a union because then they have a base to draw from and a base to build and they have a collective interest but they're not unionized. That's not their channel of influence. So they're having to fight for a seat at the table. And I've found whether we're talking about an urban, rural, or suburban district, that when those relationships are intact and everybody, all the stakeholders feel like they're being heard, 
the pandemic was challenging and scary, but it didn't ruin anyone's life. It didn't halt all processes. It didn't lead to animosity. Those folks could work through it because they had channels of influence and they knew how to listen to each other and how to work together and how to put a committee together where everyone was going to be heard and they trusted each other. And so you have to build trust. And so one of the ways to build trust is to make sure that everyone is actually heard. So I don't think there's a policy or practice that's a silver bullet, although I do think that um, there needs to be more more funding equity and that that needs to happen either with federal funds or some states have pioneered a lot of equity um, at the state level. So you pool resources and then you allocate it based on actual needs. And so New Jersey, for example, has done a really good job about that. Um, Minnesota is one of the states that has a lot more state level funding for districts. So you're not so reliant upon property taxes where you're going to see a lot of inequality. So I think a funding is a big part of the equation and then stakeholders actually being at the table and not villainizing one one another. So we have to be willing to like revise our views of charter schools, to revise our views of teachers unions, to revise our views of administrators and of parents. And um, parents are an interesting group too that I'd love to look more at in the future because they're not one monolith either. And I think we've seen that throughout the pandemic that oftentimes the parents that are vocal don't speak for the majority of parents. And so figuring out a channel of influence that isn't just going to give a megaphone to the people that already figure out the channels of influence is going to be important. And, and so obviously you've continued the research from this book um, going forward. And as you've noted in our conversation, you've been interviewing people throughout the pandemic um, and you've been inter- in interviewing union leaders um, in lots of different places. So I'm curious in terms of the trajectory of the research, where is it going and what are you finding? Yeah, so um, I, I started last May, I, I realized that the, the narrative was changing. Teachers were already not, not going to be heroes anymore. And I have um, a seven-year-old and a 10-year-old. So they were in virtual school for almost a year. So I'm seeing this as a parent, as someone who works in education myself, and as someone who has recently studied unions. And I realized that once again, people were starting to collect, to collect um, unions memorandum of understanding or just try to track what's the mode of instruction But we weren't really hearing what teachers wanted or what unions views were on these things at that point. And so last May, we reached out to 12 states where we tried to vary union strength and union presence, partisanship and COVID rates, which would turn out not to matter at all because COVID was going to spread everywhere. But we found 12 states and then we wanted to talk to leaders in urban, rural and suburban districts, because as I've said, a lot of what we know about in education is driven by an urban narrative. And so, you know, you've read about San Francisco, New York, and Chicago during the pandemic, and so have I, and we don't know what's happening in the suburban districts, although we think that they're open. So how did that happen? Did they just not have unions? And that's not, that's not the case. Um, and so after our first round of interviews, we, the predominant theme was fear. We just didn't know a lot last May and into last summer. And so I realized that nobody knew what their plan was going to be like for the majority of last summer. So I wanted to reach back out and see how plans took hold. So what started as just a like, okay, how are unions involved at this moment became a panel study. And so I'm about to start my fourth wave and each wave has had sort of a theme. So the first theme was this fear and uncertainty. Then last fall, when we talked to folks, there was sort of a sense of chaos, plans going back and forth on uncertainty about who was in charge and also this theme of overwork. Teachers were doing more than one job because they were working with virtual kids and kids in person, 
or even if it was just virtual kids, it was a whole new job. So everybody felt like it was their first year of teaching all over again. And then by spring, we started to see vaccinations. So teachers didn't feel scared in the same way as they had in the prior rounds, but they just felt burnt out. They were done. So they were now, they had, they were resigned. And so they basically were saying, yeah, now I just do what people say. I know the plan's going to change. So I just show up. They weren't even trying to take control of the situation. Um, this summer, we're hoping to ask them to look backwards and think about if they see any patterns or any um, anything that they feel really great about or really terrible about and to reimagine and think forward, not just to next year, but to what comes after the pandemic, if this is a moment of restarting. Um, George Floyd was also murdered in Minnesota right as these interviews were going live. And so we saw that as an opportunity to ask teachers, um, union leaders, how they were grappling with that moment and how they were advising educators to confront structural racism or whether they were. And so that's just a separate line of what we were able to do with that project, which we think is really important. Um, So the other thing that I think uh, we heard and that I have been writing about recently is people don't understand school governance. I don't blame them. I hardly understand it. But um, the narrative was that teachers unions held up schools. But in reality, most teachers unions don't have a lot of power. Even when they do, if they were not engaged in collective bargaining actively, they had less power than you might think. And that school boards and superintendents took their roles differently. A lot of school boards did what a lot of state legislatures did, and they abdicated power to the executive, which meant giving power to the superintendent. But in the school board case, that's really interesting because they are the superintendent's boss. And they said, oh, we're going to let this employee make all the decisions and we don't have a time when we're going to weigh back in. We haven't decided like what we'll do if we don't like that decision or how we'll allow input into that process. So in a lot of districts, it was just a superintendent making decisions. And so you could say that the union held that up, but the superintendent could also have perfectly legally decided not to listen to the union. Um, and so I think it's it's just a lot more complicated, and we don't even know what the governance structure was in most of these districts throughout the pandemic. And I think that that's going to be really important to understand going forward, because I again I think good governance is governance where all the stakeholders have some channel of influence. Everyone should at least be heard, so you know what your interests are. Something else that relates to school governance that came up was that um, a lot of charter schools were not opening as quickly as we might think, since we think teachers don't have power in that context. And that's because there were no extra teachers waiting to step up. And so even though they didn't have a union, charter school teachers could say, no, I do not feel safe. I'm not coming back. And they were playing a game of chicken with the administrators. And the administrators could say, come back and then lose four teachers. And then they couldn't actually come back, nor hire or find any more teachers. So you can't blame the union when we have other examples from the South or from charter schools where, no, it's not the union keeping the schools closed. Um, And so I think the union has been and is an important voice. It's not the only voice. It's not the only way that teachers can have some influence. But I think if teachers don't have a say in education, then you're not really doing public education because they're the ones that make it work. If they don't show up, it doesn't happen. And, And as you say, that certainly has been part of the conversation in the course of the pandemic. And as you were going through your experiencing experiences with the interviews and what the teachers were saying, I'm like, yep, that was how I felt then. <laughs> that was how I felt then. Right. Yep. 
and I'm, you know, at a college university level. And, right, yeah. and we have more security and we have less exposure. And in higher ed, a lot of the decisions were not put you in a classroom with kids that will come very close to your face at all times. So, yeah. Yeah. So I take it that the the research that you're doing now and these these longer and broader interviews or geographically broader interviews will turn into the next book. We're hoping so. So I've actually got back together with a colleague from graduate school, Sarah Dayhill Brown, and she has written a book on education governance and I've written on teachers unions. So it seemed like a good place for us to to meet back up. And so we're for sure this summer working on an article about that governance piece and just a descriptive piece about these different stages of the pandemic from the teacher perspective, because we think that's important and missing. Um, We think it could be a book. Um, but after someone that wrote a book that came out last year in the midst of the pandemic and then took care of her children while teaching and is about to become department chair, I don't know yet if there's another book in me, but we'll see. Well, if it does become a book, I welcome you and your co-author to the New Books Network to talk about it because I'd love to follow the research. Yes, um, thank you. So I want to thank Leslie Lavery for joining me today to talk about A Collective Pursuit, Teachers, Unions, and Education Reform from Temple University Press. Um, I assume one can buy this at Temple University Press, but is there a brick and mortar store with an online presence that you'd like to give a shout out to? Yes. So Common Good Books is right across the street from the McAllister campus, and they actually hosted my virtual book launch last summer. And so I would love if people purchased a copy from Common Good Books or another local bookstore. It's a book about unions. So I'd rather you not buy it on Amazon. Thank you so much for joining me today, Leslie. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks.